Tonight, what, what I want to talk about, my, my scripture is really only one verse found in James chapter 2. So if you want to start turning there, it's one verse with one thought that has just been weighing on me and, and gnawing at me for several weeks and I've had the chance to meditate on it. And I appreciate what I feel like the Lord has been showing me in that meditation. And I hope it will be of some benefit to you. But, you know, today is Super Bowl Sunday. And, and those of you who are here are missing the big game. And if you're like me, you don't care. Amen. <laughs> but it's a day when friends gather. They gather in homes. They gather in different places and sometimes they're not even friends in sports bars all over the country tonight complete strangers become friends as they root for one team or another in fact i i read an article i don't know if any of you will all ever watch, look at the babylon b online but it's a religious satire site and to me some of the articles are just hilarious and so today the one that i saw, um, or maybe it was last night, I can't remember, but it dealt with uh, a Monmouth University poll, which wasn't a real poll, of course, it's satire, that showed that Americans are 97% united, finally, behind a common cause. With all the political division and rancor, they're finally 97% unified in one cause, and that is hating the New England Patriots. (laughs) The silliness, but it's, it's silly, but at the same time, it's important that we have things like that where people can draw together, where, where people can find a common interest and a shared bond. But a lot of times, we say that we're getting together with friends, but we also call these people on Facebook that we never see and never have personal interaction with They just subscribe to our page, and we call them friends. Look how many Facebook friends I have. So friendship is is kind of the thought I want to go with today here. James chapter 2, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith... Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. The friend of God. Think about those friends that you've had for just a moment, And, and when I say friends, I say that plural in terms of different stages of life. But really, most of us, if we really think about it, we only have less than a handful, a handful or less, of really, truly close friends. But think about those friends that mean the most to you and how you treasure that relationship. I have a friend, Nathan, who we grew up together. We went to high school together, college together. We were college roommates And then when I still lived in Greenville before I moved to Alabama for a while, 
we were very close. And, and all this time that I've been away, almost 10 years now, we've never lost touch. We're still wonderful friends. We don't talk as often as we used to. We certainly don't see each other as often as we used to. But whenever one of us calls the other, we just pick up. We catch up real quick, and then it's right where it was. And, and I got to thinking about not too long ago, I, I, you know, just the pressures of life get to you. And sometimes you just need to vent. You just need to pour your heart out. And, and he had contacted me, and I called him, and, and we talked back and forth. And I found myself just kind of pouring out about some concerns and some struggles that I had. And you know what was so valuable about that was that as my friend, now he's not, he's not Superman, he's not superhuman, he has, no, he has no special powers or abilities. He can't do anything to fix my problem. But he can be there and listen. Amen. And he can give support. And he can assure me that no matter where I find myself in this life, on this road that I travel... That he is just a phone call away. And I take comfort in that. In that closeness of a friendship. Now I have that same friendship with my spouse. I, I would hope that, that we all do. Uh, but sometimes it's good to have that third party. Especially you know, male. Two male friends can talk differently. Even than a male and female spouse in, in some respects. So I'm not trying to place him above her. I'm just kind of putting things in perspective. <clears throat> that the closeness of that relationship is something I wouldn't trade. He's my friend. I don't have many. And I, and I don't say that as a pity me. I, I don't want many. We, we can only handle so many of those very tight-knit, close relationships. Abraham was a friend of God. And before I go into the meaning of that word, I, I want us to all know and realize that those of us who've been saved, we are God's friends also. Jesus told us as much when he told his disciples, Behold, I have called you my friend, for the servants don't know what the master is doing, but I have shown you what the father is doing. And we know that that... You know what the Father was doing through Christ was number one, give us, giving us an example and teaching us about the kingdom. But in, in Romans, we see that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. It's not a mystery anymore. He has revealed it to us because we are no longer servants, but we are His friends. <clears throat> and that, not of anything that we've done, He's chosen to befriend us. So we too are his friends. But how often, how often do we just pour out our hearts and our souls to God? Just because. And what I mean by that is, if you were friends with Superman, there would be a tendency, in fact, we see this, if you look at the comics you see, or, or in the movies, you see this in Lois Lane, that there is a tendency to take advantage of the fact that he could fly and he could lift the world. I mean, <laughs> there are those who, when a friend has power, when a friend has power, 
we will try to manipulate or take advantage of that for our own personal gain or purposes. And I wonder how many times, and I'll admit it's, it's me, but how many times do you find yourself treating God that way? Because, yes, God is all-powerful. God is almighty. God can do anything, move anything, change anything, be anything, do whatever he wants. So all too often when the Lord just wants my fellowship and he just wants me to love him enough and trust him enough that I can call him like I call my friend Nathan and say, you know, I know there's nothing you can do about it. I just want to know that you're there with me. Instead, we cry out, God, do something about this. Why won't you do something? Why won't you fix my problem? Why won't you correct what's going on in my family? Why won't you pour out a blessing from above? You can do that, God. It's not fair. Do you not love me? Any of you ever found yourself in that situation? With those thoughts, maybe even in the recesses of your mind. What does it mean to be a friend of God? As I kind of delved into this, I looked, I found that according to the Gospels, in, in the Greek, there were, there were two words that Jesus used that are both translated as friend. So I don't know how, how you all feel about it. I, I love the King James Version of the Bible. It's, it's what I grew up with. That's, that's the Bible to me. However, I realized that Jesus didn't speak English. He can, but he didn't because those around him wouldn't have understood him. It was not an English-speaking world. So when we read the Bible in English, we are reading a translation. Amen. And truth be told, we are reading a translation of a translation. Because it wasn't in English first. And a lot, of the, a lot of the King James was taken from German texts, some, some from Greek. But even the Greek was a translation of the Aramaic. Not that it was written in Aramaic. The gospel writers wrote in Greek. But Jesus spoke Aramaic. So anyway, my point is it does us well to go back to the original language when we can. And to see the different shades of meaning. Because in English, we have the word friend. But in the Bible, in in the Greek, there are two words that Jesus used, according to the Gospel writers, that are both translated as friend. And it pays to look at them. Because one is hetairos. Hetairos. You don't have to write that down, or if you want to. I mean, I won't quiz you on it. But it does some good to look into it. It's H-E-T-A-I-R-O-S. H-E-T-A-I-R-O-S. That's the English transliteration anyway. Hetairos. And depending on the source that you use, if you Google it, you may find that it means a friend or a comrade, kind of a casual acquaintance. It's that type of... Casual acquaintance, that's almost the word we would use to refer to our Facebook friends. But dig a little deeper and you find some contextual clues because then you'll find some word study helps that will dig deeper into the context and the way the word is usually used. 
And then it gets a little more interesting. Because yes, it is a comrade. Or often it's a comrade who has his own interests at heart. Or someone who poses himself as a friend, but in reality only has his own self-interest at heart. And sometimes it's even defined as an imposter. Now that's the word friend. Well, some examples, Matthew 26, when Judas comes and kisses Jesus on the cheek. Jesus looks at Judas and says, friend, Hetairos, friend, why are you here? We also see in the parable, <clears throat> the, the parable of um, the ruler who invited all the guests to the wedding. And there was one found at the wedding who did not have on wedding garments. And the master of ceremonies goes to him and says, friend, friend, why don't you have on wedding garments? And what happened next was the friend was speechless and he was cast into outer darkness. <coughs> because they are imposters, they're not friends in the way that you and I typically think of those close-knit relationships. But Jesus used that word for friend. However, here in James 2, when it says that Abraham was called the friend of God, that word is philos, P-H-I-L-O-S. The root word there is one that we know from philanthropy, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But philos is a beloved, a trusted confidant. Philos is the word used for Abraham as a friend of God. He was a beloved of God. He was a trusted confidant. He was a treasured relationship with God. Philos is also the word Jesus used when he says, Behold, I have called you my friends. We... As saved people, we have become, we have been made the friends of God. We are Christ. God in Christ has chosen us as his beloved, his, his treasured relationships. Amen. His intimately known. What a beautiful thought. So the question that's been nagging at me, especially as I think about all those times that I don't just go to God in prayer and pour out my heart just satisfied that he's there with me, but instead wanting to utilize his powers and wanting him to exercise his dominion over the universe to benefit me, what kind of friend am I being? Now he has called me Philos. And nothing I can do will change that. Because that's based on a love of the will, a, a decision that he has made in his infinite wisdom to love me. But I can respond. So am I being a philos to him? Or am I being a hetairos? 
one who poses himself as a comrade, but in reality only has his own self-interests at heart. It's worth some self-investigation. It's worth some introspection to see where you stand in that. Because I want to be a friend of God. The kind of friend of God that Abraham was. And as I think about this, I can think about the times that, that almost on a daily basis, I am more of the imposter. I'm saved as saved can be. And yet I don't respond to God in that way. <clears throat> and I also think about this. There, there are times when I'll recount uh, some, some of my high school days or stories from college. and Some of them aren't necessary to share here. And y'all can understand why. God is gracious. Thank you. But I'll talk about, yeah, my friend from back then. My friend. And I still will refer to some of the folks that I was in college with, some of my fraternity brothers, as, as my friends. But I haven't spoken to them in 20 years. How intimate is our friendship? How close and treasured is that relationship? And yet I wonder sometimes how many, how often some of those who call themselves the Lord's people talk about the Lord as their friend. And yet they haven't spoken to him in 20 years. Or the closeness of the relationship stopped at that last great memory. Kind of like some of my relationships in college. Well, what's your relationship been since then? Well, it's been non-existent. So how, how are they still my friends if the relationship is non-existent? And yet I wonder how many of the folks in our churches sometimes, just by virtue of, of the way they may live, as, as you go around them, the, the pessimism and, and the, oh, poor pitiful me, Failing to live in joy. And you just have to wonder. Have they had any relationship with the Lord since he saved them? So many can give a wonderful testimony of salvation. And, and it's not my place to judge or doubt that. But has the friendship continued or, or was that the end of it? You had this great vacation together and haven't spoken since. Kind of like the great memories you make on a spring break trip in college and then you part ways and 30 years later you're telling your kids about it. Well, where is he now? I don't know. So if that's our experience with the Lord, what are we going to do? Are we going to tell our kids about the time that we got saved? I hope we would. But then when they ask, well, what about now? What's our answer going to be? What kind of friend are we to God?
Now we know from the gospel what kind of friend God is to us. For we know that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself through his blood. Jesus gave his all for his friends. The polar opposite of Hetairos. Seeking anything but his own self-interest. But seeking the glory of his father. I don't want to go the romantic route that so many go. Saying that Jesus did it all for me. Jesus didn't do it all for me. Jesus did it to glorify his father. But he put his own self-interest at the very bottom and said, Not my will, but thine be done. What kind of friends are we to God? Can we be the kind of friend that we need to be? It, It seems very simple. Jesus didn't ask much of his friends. In fact, the one demand that we see, he said, Can you not stay and pray with me for an hour? Remember that in the garden? He took three. Well, they were all with him. And then he took three a little farther. And then he said, stay here and pray. And he went a little farther. And he came back and they're asleep. And he said, can you not pray with me for an hour? He didn't say, can you not pray for me? Because he knew they couldn't understand or comprehend what was coming. They wouldn't know how to pray for the Son of God. How do you pray for the Son of God? But he said, can you pray with me? And you might wonder, well, how would they have known even what to pray? They didn't know what was coming. He had taught them how to pray. He taught them how to pray. And if you read his prayer, he was praying exactly as he taught them. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is not a far cry from, Father, let, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. We can be a friend to God by just simply praying with him. By uniting our hearts with him. By being with him, not after our own self-interests. But being compatriots with him for his cause. For his aim. For his goals. To pray with him. To join with him. To even now pray. Lord not my will. But thine be done. Yes bring your burdens before. Jesus taught us that. He taught us how to do that. If there were ever anyone in the whole universe. Who could pray and pull the heartstrings of God to manipulate power to his own self-interest and advantage. It was Jesus Christ. And yet even in the garden, when he suffered more agony and torment of spirit than we ever have. Things may get hard for us, but we've never borne that burden. And we need to remember that sometimes. And it seems like it's hard when maybe our families are falling apart or our children are going astray or the money just doesn't last. We don't know how we're going to pay this bill or that bill or sickness strikes. And there's a desperate need for healing. 
We need some kind of deliverance and the weight is just too heavy to bear. And yet, we have never come close to shouldering the burden that Jesus carried in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because Jesus was shouldering the burden of knowing he was going to be separated from his Father. And because of Jesus, those of us who've been saved, we never have to shoulder that burden again. So even shouldering that massive burden, he called out to God and he told him all, all of his thoughts, all of his fears, all of his burden, all of his heartache, You know, we only have a few sentences recorded in the Bible, but we know that he prayed for a long time. We know that he prayed until he sweat drops of blood. The not my will but thine be done was not the only thing he said. He poured out his entire being to the Father and summed it up by being content to know the Father was with him by saying, nevertheless... Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So as friends of God, can we pray with Jesus for an hour? During those seasons when we feel like we've been forsaken, or when we feel like the burden is just too heavy to bear, we can't shine our light because I'm too busy trying to survive. Don't ask me to shine as a beacon of hope. Anyone ever feel like that? I do. You're asking too much, Lord. This burden is too much to bear. If only you would fix it. Can we not pray with him for an hour? Pour all that out to the Lord. I can't even remember what the circumstance was now, but I I know Jessica got angry and upset and frustrated at one point. And she said, I'm just, I'm angry at God. I said, that's okay. He's a big boy. He can take it. And we kind of giggled about it, but then she realized, yeah, that's true. She'd known that all her life. She just needed to hear it again. The Lord doesn't mind. The Lord doesn't mind when we pour out our disappointments and our frustrations. He doesn't mind when we say, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. As long as in humility we can then say, nevertheless, not my will but thine. And put our self-interest aside. For the greater cause. And be that compatriot. United for a common cause. And that is the glory of God. So what kind of friend are you? I'm not the friend I want to be. There's another beautiful picture. That word philos is also used of the friend of the bridegroom. And I couldn't find as much as I wanted to about this because it's, it's really fascinating. It's one of those ancient Middle Eastern wedding traditions, which you, if you can understand that, then a lot of the parables that you see make a, are much more clear. 
But the friend of the bridegroom, Philos, was a trusted companion, a trusted confidant, who was entrusted to speak for the bridegroom in either helping to procure a bride or to make arrangements for the nuptial ceremonies. We see that a little bit. Abraham sent a friend of the bridegroom to secure Isaac's wife. Correct? Isaac didn't go find Rebecca. She was brought to him. How much do you have to trust someone to say, go get my wife a son? Because it's not even, because also, you know, there's a, in our selfish society now, some would say, well, it's not my wife. But in that society, progeny was everything. So he entrusted this servant with his family name for generations to come. That was a philos. That was a friend of the bridegroom. Jesus, in addition to saying, Behold, I have called you my friends, he also refers to us as children of the bride chamber, which is kind of a euphemistic translation that is often brought about to mean friends of the bridegroom. I can't remember that exact uh, reference, but if, if you Googled sons of the bride chamber or children of the bride chamber, it would probably give you that scripture. But if you read it as friends of the bridegroom, then it makes a lot more sense. And John the Baptist, John the Baptist, when, when his, when, People came to him and said, what about this man, Jesus, who you baptized? And now people are following him. And John's answer was, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. And thus, my joy as the friend of the bridegroom is fulfilled. He must increase and I must decrease. The job of the bridegroom in in one of the sources that I saw, one of the jobs in, in addition to other things in preparing for the nuptials is before the groom would come to take the bride, the friend of the bridegroom would come before, saying, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. He heralded the coming of the bridegroom. So I ask you again, are you a friend of God? Is your life heralding, heralding the coming of the bridegroom? Faith Church. Is Faith Church a friend of the a friend of the bridegroom? No, actually Faith Church should be a friend of the bride or should be part of the bride. We hope. We hope. Correct? So the question for us individually is, are we friends of the bridegroom? Are we helping to secure a bride? Are we working on behalf of Faith Church or any of our other various churches to help people hear the gospel that they may be saved and brought into the fellowship of a sound church, that they may be part of the bride of Christ? That would be part of being tasked with helping to select a bride. But more than that, the the heralding 
that came before the bridegroom would come for the bride. That wasn't just for the bride. Because weddings were a community event. They were for everyone. So everyone heard the heralding. I'm certain I fall short. And I'm not worthy of the calling. But I pray that from time to time, maybe God will give me strength and grace. That something about me, something about my life, something about the way that I conduct myself, may give out one heralding cry to the world around me. That something about my life will announce to people, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. That's the kind of friend of God I want to be. Amen. So how do we get there? Again, we have that in James 2. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Because he believed God? Well, we could get to a sticky point there. That's an easy way to get to easy believism, isn't it? But on the other side, in, in the context, this passage is also where we get, uh, you know, just, uh, let's see the verse before that. No, it's the verse after yet, after that. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Well, you can cause entire denominational rifts on this. Because you'll have the one side that will say, See? See? It's by works that you're justified. You have to act a certain way, do a certain thing, pray a certain prayer, be a certain way, look a certain look, it's by works that a man is justified and, and not faith only. But then you have in Romans, I believe it is, where it says, We seeth then that no man is justified by the works of the law. That's where the contention is. No man is justified by works of the law. Those things that, that man has contrived to say, In order to be righteous, this you must do. No man can be justified that by that. Even the law that God gave, God gave it in such a way that the things he tells us to do and not do, we can't not do and do. Did that make sense? It did in my head. We cannot be justified by the works of the law. But if you truly believe in something, in, the, in this biblical sense, this uh, pistis, Kind of faith. And you look up that word. That's another Greek word. P-I-S-T-I-S. It's not just an intellectual assent. But it is a wholehearted trust. And there's a difference when you wholeheartedly trust something. You respond differently. You don't believe me? I believe it might rain tomorrow. So you think I'm going to wear my rain slicker everywhere I go? Or am I going to wait and see if it rains? 
If I wear the rain slicker everywhere I go and it's a bright sunny day all day, well then I've just shown that I wholeheartedly trusted that it was going to rain. We behave differently. We do different deeds. We act differently. We do different works when we wholeheartedly trust in something. Anyone here just absolutely believe you're convinced that you're going to win the lottery? If so, let me see your ticket. Make sense? So I can give intellectual assent. I can say, yes, Jesus died to save sinners, but until I surrender my will to his, I haven't really trusted him. Until I've come to the end of myself and trusted only in him. That's how Abraham believed God. God said to Abraham, get up and remove to a far country. And did he say, well, let me do this and that and this and that? No, he just pulled up stakes and left. He said, okay, God. How will I know where I'm, when I'm there? I'll tell you when you get there. Okay. Now, is that to say Abraham was perfect? No, he made some mistakes along the way. He was a little bit self-reliant along the way. But again, Abraham was a good friend who even though... He had this intimate relationship with God. He didn't call upon God only to fix each and everything to benefit himself. So when he went to Egypt, yes, he deceived people about his wife, calling her his sister. And it was wrong. And he was, he was um, reprimanded for it. But that's kind of a, a human thing to do. I'm actually not going to castigate him for that because what a lot of us would do is we would refuse to go because, well, Lord, I can't go down there because this will happen and that will happen. But Abraham, God said go and he was going and he was going to do whatever it took. followed he believed God he banked everything on it and in the day that we're saved at least for eternity's standpoint we finally come to a point that we bank everything on God we rest our case at the cross because that's all we've got and when we come to the point of saying, Lord, I have no case, all I've got is your cross. Then he can finally save us. But what about as we go from day to day in our lives? Do we trust him? Do we really wholeheartedly trust and believe and follow him doing what it takes to follow him it's another thing I can't fault Abraham for is 
sometimes we get this holy speak thing going where, well, I just want to follow the Lord. So until I receive some kind of specific direction and input, I'll just stay right here. Anyone ever been there? I'll be frozen in my tracks until I hear from God. And sometimes God just wants us to go about our daily lives so that he can be glorified through it. He wants to be glorified through our intellect. He wants to be glorified through the ingenuity that we have in, in devising new ways to provide for ourselves and to, and to multiply and be fruitful. He wants to be glorified in our productivity. And we're not very productive when we're standing still saying, I can't do anything until the Lord directs me. There's a time for that. I'm not saying that we should always try to get ahead of God. You know, have you ever heard someone say, well, I don't want to get ahead of God. God is outside of time and space. How do you get ahead of God? Really? I'm sorry, I'm just going to be colloquial here. I don't understand that anymore. It used to sound really good and really holy to me. I don't understand that expression anymore. Because does anyone really think that God was surprised when we did something? Thought, well, I didn't see that coming. Well, he really got ahead of me on that one. That's just ridiculous. So God told Abraham to go. It was a clear-cut direction and motivation to go. So Abraham went. But along the way, he was productive. He was fruitful. He was industrious. He did what it took to survive. He even increased his wealth and standing in the world community. And yet somehow, uh, somehow um, amongst some of God's people, we've got this idea that, well, to be holy, you've got to be meek and not do anything unless you're specifically directed. And certainly you shouldn't be successful. I, I don't understand that anymore. And I don't think you're being a friend to God when you do that. Because you're robbing him of glory. Because maybe, maybe God wants to be glorified through your industriousness. Maybe he wants to be glorified through the way that you advance at work. Maybe he wants to be glorified in the way that you go directions that you wouldn't have dreamed that you would go. And that certainly didn't come to you through prayer. It was just an opportunity that came along. And just because it doesn't seem holy doesn't mean it's not from God. God uses the things of this world to confound the wise. That's a tangent a little bit different from what I was going to go at, but it, it's part of how Abraham was a friend of God. And, and we tend to want to look at that and say, yeah, Abraham believed God, but then he lied about his wife. Look at the big picture. And get the beam out of your eye. <laughs> <coughs> Because how many of us have just picked up and moved our entire lives to a strange new land? And especially in a, in a world in which progeny was everything. Banked on a promise that a 90-year-old woman would conceive a son. And then believe that promise so much that you're willing to sacrifice that son. Yes, he lied about his wife, but look at the big picture. He believed God, 
And we know that he believed God, not because he said, I believe you, Lord, but because of what he did. Because of the way that he lived his life after his encounter with the Lord. So what about you and I? Do our lives reflect that we had an encounter with Almighty God that changed us in such a way that it was never going to be the same again? Did our encounter with the Lord change our relationship with God from enmity to friendship? The kind of friendship where it's a treasured relationship, a trusted companionship, a belovedness between two parties where self-interest is put aside. In this day and age, we know that a lot of the churches like ours are suffering. And maybe that's the way it's supposed to go. Maybe. Or maybe we need to look at what we may be doing that is causing God not to receive glory in his churches. God receives glory from brave, from a brave, courageous, faithful remnant. Amen. But in a society in which it doesn't take much courage to stand for the Lord, at least at this point, I'm not sure God gets much glory out of declining churches. They say, where is the power in his name? And you and I know where the power is in his name. But in just searching for answers, it's worth it to try everything. And maybe, maybe this is the way that God means for it to go. But if it's not, if it's not, maybe this is his way of causing us to do some introspection. And maybe one of the questions we need to ask is, are we being a friend of God? Are we putting self-interest aside and trusting him? And following wherever he says to go. And are we being the friend of the bridegroom? Whose lives herald the coming of the bridegroom. Because he is coming. Amen. We talk about it every Sunday. We sing about it every Sunday. In fact, some of us, some of the treasured old saints, to hear them talk, you'd think that they would rather not live another day than to see him come back. Which, to see him come back, sure. But some people talk about, well, when I get to heaven. Well, what about the time you have here? We have time left here. Heaven is a blessed promise. But while we're here, while we're here, let's herald his coming. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Are we being that friend? Or are we being Hatiros and seeking our own self-interest 
Maybe even secretly, maybe even so secretly that we didn't realize it. Or being fair weather friends. Or Facebook friends. You know, that, that, oh, that, that's a great one. Because my child is born and people call and text their congratulations. They, they see me at work and there's congratulations. And then there are the people that, that are not really friends, but they're Facebook friends. And it's like, hey, I just had a baby. Like, do we rejoice? Do we truly rejoice in the things God is doing? Or when we see a powerful move of God, is it kind of like, like, we'll just click like. And we're that kind of friend of God. What kind of friend of God are we? God pours out his blessings on his friends. And then, again, maybe what we're seeing is the way that it's supposed to go. But I still think we're supposed to be industrious and productive and not go down without a fight. Instead of just saying, well, if our doors close, I guess it's the Lord's will. Well, it might not be the Lord's will if you just shut the doors. I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about in general. I I hope you all understand that. It's just a, a burden for the things that I see. And those that are content to just let it be and let it go and we've got our comfort zone and well we may be dwindling but at least we don't have to try something new or reach out to people we don't know. At least we don't have to do something different. We've done it for the last 25 years and we don't have to get a new hymnal and we can sing the same old songs. Sure we haven't had a piano player in 23 years but we still know those songs. If you're content with that, maybe it's not the Lord's will, maybe it's your will. What kind of friend are you to God? That's the question I've been asking myself for two weeks now. What kind of friend am I to God? And I've come to the conclusion that a lot of the time, not a very good one. (coughs) But by His grace, through the power of his spirit, he can help me. Amen. And he can help the rest of us. Amen.